south of Jasper Avenue. So this is across from the Red Arrow bus stop where there are currently giant parking lots. There are Uh, giant parking lots in our downtown? Imagine that. This week, oregano transit for you. We've got a lot of transit to talk about. Uh, During the last election, BRT was the dog whistle word for I hate transit. We'll help you learn about the new words councillors are using today. We'll also talk about tower density downtown and some of the pushback against Falcon Tower. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally. We're here in episode 10. And boy, do we have a rapid fire segment for you coming up right now. At least six city councillors turned rust orange with rage this week as the motion to cancel the winter calcium chloride pilot was defeated 7-6. to Some argued about the slippery slope of lowering municipal costs by substantially increasing private maintenance costs. But the seven-councillor majority said that they could get that slope down to dry pavement with the calcium chloride solution. So it's not a problem. Thales said their signaling system is ready to go ahead of the final contract terminating deadline of December 4th. Strangely, the city wants to independently verify that the signaling system truly functioned as intended safely. Hasn't our five-year relationship with Thales over-promising and not delivering built any trust at all? And finally, David Staples wrote an article this week alleging that city council's plan to raise taxes is being devastated by, but not limited to, their failure to privatize city services and their insistence on social engineering with some newfangled LRT technology, whatever that is. Uh, This is only news because Elise Stolte got promoted to city columnist, so this should be our last week of journal columns with this level of quality. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB, and this week we want to tell you about Otherwise, a show that we've talked about in the past. It's created under the auspices of the Ribbon Rouge Foundation. It's a variety podcast dedicated to empowering diverse communities living on Treaty 6 territory by sharing stories of their lived experiences. Episode 1 is out now. You can go listen to it. It's not just a trailer anymore. You can go listen to the full thing. So head on over to otherwiseshow.com to listen or go wherever podcasts are sold. So this week we're going to talk quite a bit about transit. We talked about Uh, Councillor Paquette's impending motion to explore free transit last week. Uh, I was on vacation this week, so that's why we're a little bit later. But Troy, you were listening to Council, uh, at least some of it, and it was quite a show. Yeah, City Council hates transit. Uh, So that's your hot take for this week. Uh, So let's get down to what actually happened this week. The big item that we're probably going to talk about is Councillor Paquette's motion for the study of free transit right. came to a head. He gave the notice of motion last week, and now this week, council actually debated possibly going forward with it. And all he wanted to do was investigate how much and what the implications of free transit might look like. And in fact, the motion wasn't limited to just free transit. It was talking about examining the transit system holistically. Right. Because previously we've got piecemeal, you know, we'll get a bit of information about fares, we'll get a bit of information about routes, we'll get a bit of information about ridership and ridership drivers, but we never really got it all together and we never looked at the implications of tweaking our transit system in various ways. So this motion basically said, I want to look at all of this and also I specifically want you to look at also free because I think knowingly he knew that city administration wouldn't consider free unless he told them to. So this is a council that previously supported 
funding a study to fund a study on gondola usage. So I'm surprised to hear they weren't interested in funding a study on transit. So I think the most shocking part of it, I mean, at one point you had, you know, Councillor Katarina saying, no, I absolutely will not support this in any way or... And he said there's no way that transit should be considered a... Yeah, he essential service. Yeah, his primary argument against this is Councillor Paquette said, you know, transit is essential service. Therefore, you know, we should subsidize it. Right. He said police, fire, those are essential services. Transit, not even close on the list of essential services. So that was, you know, Councillor Katarina. I wasn't surprised by that editorializing. I was surprised by Don Iveson, who probably came out as the most staunch opponent for this motion entirely. And this motion, to gather research. Some of the things he said were, frankly, quite shocking. Um, This is coming from a mayor who was, you know, as a councillor, elected on a transit platform. He gets on the LRT and talks to people. He really hammers down his transit credentials. But like some people say, you know, you look at the city budget and that gives you real insight about what a city's priorities really are. You look at Don Iveson's voting record, and that gives you some real insight about how much he really doesn't support a good transit system in the city of Edmonton. We talked about this last week. His motion for free transit for kids under 12 is not, in fact, free transit for kids under 12. It's a political theater that doesn't cost the city anything and doesn't materially change the way in which young children ride the bus in order to get a family-friendly agenda on the table. And to shore up those transit credentials, you're saying. And to shore up the transit credentials. But this week, we really saw it come to a head where some of the lines of argument that our mayor was using were things like, he said he absolutely could not support free transit because we currently have a ridership of the transit system that both has the capacity to pay and are currently paying. So he doesn't support the tax base subsidizing those people. Which is some thoughts on that. Oh, I mean, that's a really bold thing to say. And I know uh, the mayor and other councillors have all on the record before owned up to the fact that we subsidize drivers every day in the city. But to call out subsidizing transit when decision after decision after decision perpetuates the driving culture and the subsidies that people who drive get in the city is just mind boggling to me. Yeah, the... It was weird, really, the sort of cognitive dissonance that our mayor, who has railed against cognitive dissonance in the past, (laughs) actively used in his arguments. In a series of tweets, he cited a white paper on user fees uh, as an argument for why we shouldn't give free transit. Right. This is the same white paper that I spoke to council about a couple years ago, arguing that it said we should have free transit and that Paquette used in his motion to argue that we should have free transit. Uh, Some of the things this white paper says is, for example, you know, we collect about $130 million worth of fares and then we put in about $200 million of tax dollars into transit every year. And that every year the city reaps $700 million of benefits. That's, you know, reduced congestion, reduced collisions, environmental impacts, all sorts of, you know, economic calculations. So we're getting an over two times return on investment annually. Which is pretty good by any measure. And yet he argues that this paper says we shouldn't uh, give free transit. It was, it was incredible to me. Um, 
I think he has changed his mind over the years about transit. I think when he was a counselor, he himself had floated the idea of, of free transit and had seen some benefits to that. And then over time, maybe felt like, you know, it lowers the value of transit if you don't have to pay anything for it. You know, there's that argument to be made and that some critics would make in response. But And I think that's a really interesting argument because it's true. You know, you right. pay less for something, you know, you lower the value of it. I would argue that making transit free correctly assesses the value of Edmonton Transit. I mean, to the point about essential service, right? So, you know, I think it's a healthy thing for people to change their minds. It's just a bit surprising that he's gone so far on this one. And so he mentioned taxes as one of the reasons why he wasn't maybe so supportive uh, of this motion. And he he mentioned, you know, this would be like a 7% tax increase or 8% tax increase for people. And in the budget cycle coming up, we know that they're having a lot of pressure put on them to low, lower taxes, keep taxes low. Do you think that was all there was to it? I, I do. I have some thoughts. Yes. On I personally think that is what it is. I think Iveson is really shoring up his credentials as I'm going to be the, you know, straight man for Prosperity Edmonton and I'm going to get their wishes known on council. You had some other thoughts. Yeah, I was thinking about this because to me... Mayor Iveson is setting up the region to be his legacy, right? All of the things that have happened during his tenure around, you know, renaming CRB to the Edmonton Metropolitan Region Board, the launch of Edmonton Global to do economic development regionally. And the other thing that happened this week, yesterday or Thursday, the Regional Transit Authority Memorandum of Understanding. So we got 13 mayors now that have signed on to an MOU to build a regional transit authority. I wonder if the lack of support for free transit within the city of Edmonton is partly because it would derail these things that are happening regionally. And let's talk about it. The Regional Transit MOU, or Memorandum of Understanding. A non-story, in your words. Absolutely. I, I looked at this and I said, 13 mayors put their names on a poster board. Why are we talking about this? And I think the reason we do talk about this is because of the implications it has. Because... You said it best before the show. What does Edmonton actually get out of transit with these bedroom communities? For example, Sherwood Park, they have high usage of transit in Edmonton. Like you go at 730 to the transit station. Right. Double decker buses are full of people coming to Edmonton. Why do we need to change that? What what does a regional transit authority get us if we already have high usage of the current system? I can see this MOU being a step toward something that could benefit us further down the line, but as an agreement to just look at some bus routes. So in the journal article, it says the transit authority will likely start by consolidating intermunicipal bus routes, but could go much further and have one bus system for the entire region. So that's kind of looking down the line. So I've always wondered, it's ridiculous. Why does this, um, why does Sherwood Park, Starth County County, why does the city of St. Albert run their own buses and have their own maintenance and use different, you know, equipment than the city of Edmonton does. Surely it would make a lot more sense from a cost point of view if that was all common, right? Seems logical to me. Maybe that's a step that this could get us closer toward. But it's really on the income side, the revenue side, that I think it gets really interesting, right? I mean, I, I think you're right. There's a lot of people that use transit in Sherwood Park and in St. Albert. But what about the other 11 municipalities that are a part of this thing? Uh, I would say probably most transit use is right in the city of Edmonton. So unless we're somehow able to extract, you know, some tax revenue from these other municipalities to help this regional transit authority make decisions that are predominantly going to benefit the city of Edmonton, 
I'm just not sure what we get for it. And not to be undersold, Edmonton transit system is really bad. So if you're coming from a bedroom community, you can't park and ride. Once you're in the city of Edmonton, we don't have a different last mile solution. You have to take a bus to your destination. So unless you're downtown or in Mill Woods, you're you're looking at a very long transit ride, at which point you're going to drive your car. Well, the only other thing I would mention just is about the regional aspect, right? So as I mentioned, we've got Edmonton Global now, which is focused on economic development. There's the Metropolitan Region Board, which really seems to be uh, focused on planning. Now we'll have this regional transit authority focused on transit. In a way, it's a good thing, I think, that we're getting this collaboration on the regional level for these areas of focus that are really, really critical. And if it means that now there will be an easier place and an easier process to make decisions like the smart fare thing that got derailed for how long because we wanted to integrate it with the other systems, you know, that's a positive thing. So to me, this story really at this point is just about another step along this path toward a region in Edmonton and not just a bunch of municipalities competing with one another. And I think that's going to be Mayor Iveson's legacy ultimately. I think it's worth noting, you said the word legacy several times and I've said that I don't understand Iveson's sort of justification for this really anti-transit. What's boiling under the surface is that none of us think he's going to be the mayor in 2021. Is that a fair statement to say? I suppose that's the safe assumption, right? From looking at how long council terms are now and maybe his ambitions and also maybe his, you know, you get tired being the mayor. It's a hard job. Yeah. There's a lot to do as mayor. I mean, his schedule is insane. You can only, a person can only do that for so long. Yeah, so speculate on whether it means he's moving to a higher level of office or just retiring, but you heard it here on Speaking Municipally. Uh, we don't think Donnie's staying in office. So with that, that sort of adds weight to my argument that I don't get the political upside sure. of trying so hard to appease Prosperity Edmonton. I mean, this is a progressive mayor. I think we're all comfortable with saying that safe label i would say for don but he's really tacking hard to the center and maybe even to the right on some of these issues and it sort of runs counter to the narrative that he's established and that looping back to the free transit and how it relates to this mou i think that's one of the things that came up is if we have free transit in the city of edmonton are we going to bill sherwood park and st albert and spruce grove for getting on our buses? Are we going to have to have citizen identification cards? Right. Um, I think that could be a little bit antagonistic in the context of regional transit. Absolutely. So perhaps that was one of the reasons. Moving on to another transit-related item, the new bus routes came out there, the quote-unquote finalized bus routes. What finalized actually means is unclear because apparently it's still open for tweaks. But this is essentially in 2020, we're going to have a brand new bus route, we're going to have smart fare, and what is that transit system going to look like? Well, that came out this week. And what were your thoughts on this, Mac? Well, I guess in the same way as we said, kind of a non-story to the previous one, this is also a bit of a non-story to me. I mean, we've known this bus network redesign is coming for a long time, and I think it's been, uh, it's a positive thing. We need it, but as you say, 
citizens are now invited to provide more input from October 25th until December 9th. So it's not really done yet. So I don't know what to take from that. Um, Eddie Robar, branch manager of ETS, said that, you know, in the, the redesign of the redesign, they have incorporated some of the feedback that they heard along the way initially. Um, there's things like making sure the walking distance to bus stops is no more than five to seven minutes, adjusting community bus routes to serve more popular destinations, and they called this one out specifically, revamping the entire Castle Downs bus network to provide better connection to local transit centers. There you go. And it's worth noting that something like 80% of all transit users are going to be within 200 meters of a bus stop. So the sort of cataclysmic, I'm going to have to walk 20 miles to get to a bus stop didn't really come to fruition. Right. One thing that I bumped on is it's a quote from Eddie Robar that really piqued my fancy, especially in the context of subsidizing transit. Um, Essentially, uh, the journal said, the idea is to use the same $340 million transit budget, but shift resource to more popular direct routes to increase ridership. And Robar said that they're working on targets and projections, but he believes that increased ridership means increased fare revenue, which will in turn create more resources to offer even greater frequency. Now, that sounds really good. Until, like take some of that money invested to make the service better. Mm-hmm. Until you stop and think about it for even a second and realize that none of it makes any sense at all. Uh, first, we know that transit operates at a two-thirds loss. Right. So that means every person that gets on a bus, the city is losing, you know, two times the amount that they paid. In direct revenue, because it, we've said they, yeah. they have a 2.2 times return and overall economic benefit but that doesn't really help us at budget time so for example if you are offering a service where you sell lollipops at a loss to everyone if you get increased customers you can't buy more lollipops to sell you're still losing money on every lollipop unless there is a class of users on your system that are actually profitable with our current fares which is definitely the downtown and core users right so what Ropar is suggesting is that by targeting and increasing frequency on these high density, high frequency routes, we can milk the core to further subsidized suburbia and people who typically drive. That is their big selling point of this bus network redesign and how fares are going to contribute that. We don't need free transit. We use the same argument for free transit of if we get more people on the bus, we can have increased frequency, except in that argument, we were talking about providing essential services. In this argument by Eddie Robar, we're talking about subsidizing sprawl even further. What do you think about that? I would be all for being milked as a downtown resident uh, to use the transit service if it came more frequently. I want to be able to walk out of my house, get to the bus stop that's around the corner, and not have to wait more than two or three minutes to get on a bus that's just going straight down Jasper Avenue. And that is impossible to do today. So I would pay more for that. If in the short term that meant we were subsidizing some of the suburban routes, you know what? I might actually be okay with that because politically, I think that'll get us closer to a zone-based system in the future. And that's really, I think, probably the end game here, right? The city is way too big and way too spread out for everybody to pay the same thing and to have expect the same level of service in you know all four corners of the city. It's just not realistic. I think that's going to be the real end. Because again, in 2020, we're going to have the smart fare system, which makes zone-based fares Possible. pretty trivial yep. to implement. Yep. I think that's going to be the very interesting thing to watch because 
our revenues are going to tank. It is clear that the users of transit, the primary users, both stay on the LRT line if they're doing long commutes Mm -hmm. or are in the core, which are both per user delivery, very cheap to operate. Uh, Something like a WEM to Capilano route, that's a very expensive bus route to operate. And we're going to see when zone-based fares come in, we're going to eat into a huge chunk of our fare revenue. Why not just eat it all the way and offer free transit? Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) (laughs) But enough on transit for this week. Uh, We're going to talk about some still core-based stuff, but some towers came up this week. What happened, Mac? So the Falcon Towers, which is a proposed set of two towers from Langham Developments. They're the developers behind the Icons, the Fox Towers on 104th Street and the Omega Tower on 105th Street. They brought forward a proposal for two towers that were going to be 48 and 56 stories tall, Falcon 1 and Falcon 2, for 104th Street south of Jasper Avenue. So this is across from the Red Arrow bus stop where there are currently giant parking lots. There are Uh, giant parking lots in our downtown? Imagine that. And they went to council and they made their case and council approved it. So the subsequent news is that the towers will be a little bit shorter, 37 and 43 stories tall, but they're still pretty tall and they've now been approved. So again, if those are keeping track, this is the nth tower that city council has approved versus the zero that they have rejected downtown. There was some opposition to this, and this is sort of new. Uh, We've frequently seen community leagues in the downtown area. They're really, you know, they had complaints about community amenities or specific design features, but we've never really seen community leagues actively come out against a tower development. This week, we saw Deckel, the downtown Edmonton Community League, and Oliver oppose this. And what were some of their arguments? So the complaints that they brought forward or the concerns that they brought forward aren't actually all that new. It's new, you're right, that it's from a community league. But the idea that we're going to consolidate all of our density inside of a couple of really tall towers, as opposed to spreading that out into a number of shorter or medium-sized towers, is an argument that's been made before, right? So you have get the prestige of, of being a really tall tower, the Aldrich Tower that was approved last year, two years ago, that's supposed to be 80 stories tall. You know, it looks magnificent and it's got that prestige with height, but it doesn't really do anything to help um, you know, increase the density of the area. And if you think about what that could look like, it means you've got one really tall tower with the same amount of retail down at the bottom or commercial space down at the bottom as you could have instead of having, you know, four or five towers with that same amount of retail space spread out, right? So it kind of limits you in that way. Um, administrations looked at this before. They've looked at direct control provision rezoning. And, you know, this is all about something called the floor area ratio. Um, they've tried to improve this through uh, policy. You know, the previous concerns that community leagues had raised around what does the community get in return for these super tall towers has to some extent been addressed now with the policy around community incentives that they're required to include in these towers now. Uh, So the next thing becomes, you know, if we only have one or two small towers, does that mean we end up with a whole bunch of empty parking lots still because there's only so much demand? Yeah. It's really the heart of their argument. The floor area ratio, it's an important concept to address because the idea is if you are taking a parking lot where there are zero people currently living, and then you put up a tower where a lot of people live, suddenly you've radically increased the density on the area, so services have to increase commensurate. So if you're not building new parks, new exercise facilities, that sort of thing, well, you've reduced the capacity for everyone else already living in the area. And that's the argument you get against infill in a lot of the areas. 
if we're not actively rehabilitating our city services around, well, then density becomes a negative. Uh, the developer, he sort of twisted it in saying that more people actually increases demand and livelihood of an area, uh, which remains to be seen. Maybe to some extent, right? You can see how that argument plays out downtown right now. We've got a bunch of new condos coming on board and they're selling out really quickly. Well, some of them at least, uh, selling out really relatively quickly. And that's because there's now options, right? There's actually something that's worth looking at downtown as a possibility. And maybe a few more people have their minds open to the idea that they could live in a condo tower downtown. And that's a good thing. But there's got to be a limit to that at some point. Well, and at some point you also have to ask, is downtown the only place to live? When we're talking about building all of these residential units, sure, we're, we're increasing our density and it's good that this can counteract sprawl in some respect. But if we're not building anywhere else in the city, we, we risk either having vacant towers downtown because we've run out of demand or we risk all these other areas in the city either become more sprawl single family homes or they start to go into decline and don't have the population anymore. We've got a city. It'd be nice to just say, hey, the Henday's the limit and let's not build outside. Yeah. But wouldn't it? it? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a brave thing for city council to do? But in the absence of any sort of limit, we still need to make sure we're building up every area of the city. We've got, for better or worse, all these areas we've built. We need to maintain and reinvigorate all these areas. When we're concentrating all of our development downtown, that's, it was okay for a couple years, you know, right after Ice District came online. Oh, downtown's really sexy. But now it's getting to the point where, what about the rest of the city? And people are starting to realize that and question it when plans come to council. Even for downtown, right? Planners will tell you, or at least some planners will tell you, that if, if this, the core of a city can get to, you know, around twenty-five to 30,000 residents, that is a really strong number of people to support, to be self-sustaining in that area. Downtown Edmonton currently is about 14,500 people that live there. So we're getting there. But the problem is if we only get there through super tall towers, we're not actually creating any opportunities for choice. So families that want to have more than a one-bedroom condo, no choice. Uh, townhomes, you know, all these other types of things that could come with smaller towers, but still density, we're not seeing because all that's getting approved are these super tall towers. And as long as they keep getting approved, that's what will be brought forward to council. It, It's absolutely the case. Even it was four or five years ago, we had developers coming to city council and saying, you know, this townhome plan we plan to build it's become, you know, a four-story walk-up apartment because the economics just aren't there to build townhouses. And that goes to our zoning regulation, that goes to our development incentives, and that goes to what when we upzone a tower and we say, instead of 10 floor area ratio, you can have 17, we've increased that value of that land radically for the developer. And if we only do these massive increases in land value for large tower projects, we are essentially giving a cost incentive for developers to build more towers to go higher and higher yep that's exactly what we're going to do interesting how all of city council's problems boil down to what they are inadvertently subsidizing via their actions the other thing that i saw some debate about this week with the towers was that it impacts the surrounding property values in either a negative or a positive way and so if you're building these two towers on one set of parking lots, maybe the guy that owns the other parking lot 
is now in a hard spot because he's not able to build anything because these other two towers are there. And let me just say, I have no sympathy for land speculation. So if you're going to hold on to a parking lot in downtown for 20 years and the expectation that you're going to build a tower one day and somebody beats you to the punch, too bad, so sad. That'll wrap it up for this week on Speaking Municipally. But first, one more ad. I'm going to tell you about Perch, which is a podcast by ATB, hosted by Rob Roach, who's a member of the economics and research team at ATB. The podcast connects with the experts, influencers, and big thinkers who are shaping our province. Each series connects to the topic of the most recent issue of Perch, a research publication that ATB produces. Uh, The current one is all about the economic value of post-secondary education. So you can give that a listen and learn more by visiting atb.com slack economics and clicking on Perch. And that's it for this week. Speaking municipally, uh, we're a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. We're also produced by the lovely Taproot Edmonton. We are a journalism startup in Edmonton trying to build a new future for local journalism. We do that in a number of different ways. One of those ways is by focusing on topics of interest. We're going to be talking about that next week on a panel we're hosting during Edmonton Startup Week. You can check out that event and all of the other events that are happening at edmontonstartupweek.com. And until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.